according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look today at verses 8 through 11, or 8 through 12. We'll see how far we get. And if you're tired of turning to Hebrews and you don't want to turn to Hebrews this morning, that's fine. I'll tell you what, if you want, you can turn to Jeremiah 31. And we'll be reading the same exact verses. Because Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31 as it centers on the new covenant promises that were made to Israel. Promises that are not made to the church. They never were, they still are not, they never will be made to the church. This is the new covenant that Yahweh will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah after the great tribulation. And so um, I realize there's a, a broad spectrum of views on this, that even within evangelical Protestantism there's a broad spectrum of views on this. And uh, my point here today is not to teach that broad spectrum of views. My point today is to teach the correct view that is um, sustained by the literal hermeneutic that we employ and is consistent with our overall view of Scripture for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we don't blur Israel and the church. We don't blur uh, promises made with one party and try to claim it by another party. We stay consistent with what God says, and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about as we get to our study this morning. All right, before we do start, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to shape our thinking. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our grace blessing to assemble together on this day and just thank you for all of your grace and all of your provision. Thank you, Father, for the children and their singing and the, uh, the joy, Father, of uh, knowing that, that another generation is being grounded in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I uh, pray that, uh, that our Sunday school teachers do not grow weary in doing good, that uh, they would continue to bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ as they serve, as they serve you, Father, in, uh, in all of these different capacities. I thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to study the living and abiding Word of God that we can be very clear based upon what your Word says, not what we want it to say, but what it does say. And so we ask for your faithfulness. Father, especially in a, in a realm of doctrine that, uh, that good men have, have handled differently. And uh, so, Father, it's with fear and trembling that we come before you and uh, call upon your faithfulness to, uh, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, we've been leading up to this, leading up to, we've had all these chapters talking about the glories of Jesus Christ and how great He is. And He is great. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than His priesthood. is greater than Aaron's priesthood. Uh, in fact, there is not one area of theology in which Christ is inferior in, in any respect. And uh, to celebrate a great high priest is really the point of what this book is driving at. And in case you missed that, chapter 8 and verse 1 spotlights it, where it says the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. And yet that such a high priest that we have, we don't have here on earth, we have in heaven, that he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
And this is the point that was made all the way back in chapter 1 when Jesus Christ made purification for sins. He, he ascended to heaven. He was seated at the Father's right hand. Remember that? For to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So really, we have such a high priest, and that's the main point that's been given, and it's a high priest not on earth, a high priest that's in heaven. And uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in heaven, actually, over the next couple of chapters. We get a guided tour of heaven in chapter 9. We're going to see the heavenly temple in chapter 9 that Jesus cleanses with his own blood. Not the earthly replica, not the tabernacle, not Solomon's temple, not Ezra's temple, not Herod's temple, not the coming tribulational temple, not even the coming millennial temple. Those are all earthly replicas. The heavenly temple is in the presence of God himself in the third heavens. And that's where the real Holy of Holies is. That's where Jesus is. That's where we are in our Melchizedek priesthood. Yes, our bodies are seated at a you know, an earthly structure on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. But our souls, we, our spiritual service is in the heavenly places in Christ. And we need to recognize this or we will end up with a deficient um, priestly ministry and uh, we don't want any part of that. All right, because that first covenant has lots of faults. And uh, we see here in verse 6 and verse 7, kind of where we ran out of time a week ago, uh, it says in verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises this is now the second time that we've had the new covenant mentioned it's the second time it's been mentioned in connection with also with the term also as if there's a body of truth that's one thing all by itself but then above and beyond that is this other thing here and this reference to also we had it back in chapter 7 in verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And I think those alsos get overlooked because there's a tendency to try to mesh it all together, to try to take what's future and promised in the future and try to mesh it together with what's in the present. And Hebrews doesn't do that. Hebrews actually is, is quite expressive in keeping them separated. The here and now, he's seated at the Father's right hand, but he won't always be seated at his Father's right hand. It's only until the enemies are made a footstool for his feet. It's only until the Father says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. So the present session of Jesus Christ is only for the here and now. It's only for the time being. That session will conclude when he descends at his second advent. Likewise, the the role that he has as the mediator of the new covenant, that's not here and now. That is waiting. That is yet future. That's why it's introduced with these also's. All of the glories, all of the credentials that he has, all of, all of that by virtue of his obedience on the cross, by virtue of his exaltation, those are all the qualifications of what he has now. A high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, the head of the church, everything that he's doing now in session is the here and now. Beyond that is the also. He is also the mediator of the new covenant. And that will take place on earth when he returns at his second advent. We're going to be very clear on that. And today is going to help as we work our way through the prophecy, as we work our way through the details of what this is, of what this is dealing with. So we then have the if statement of verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. 
And this is a counterfactual statement. I spent some time last week talking about the what-ifs and the counterfactuals and things that are not true. But had they been true, then this would have been the consequence or this would have also happened. And uh, and I love the way the Scripture describes this. The Scripture uses a lot of these. Uh, we only got about halfway through the list last week. Uh, and uh, we didn't even, and I'm not going to come back to it today. I'll just encourage you to write these verses down and spend some time in these. All of these are second class condition if that are not true. None of these are true, but had they been true, like if Capernaum miracles had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented, see? And Jesus states that as a, as a confirmed fact. In his omniscience, he knows that to be true. Likewise, uh, there's other. Uh, what if statements and, and things that if they had been true, then this other thing would have happened. Jesus told his disciples uh, that he's going away, it's to their advantage that he goes away, and he says, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. And that's a very convicting message because Jesus is telling them they don't love him and because they didn't rejoice. They weren't thrilled with his departure. They were, they were doing what they could to stop the departure. They were, they, you know, Peter was going to grab a sword and, and keep Jesus from going to the cross. They weren't rejoicing over his departure. And, and that's clear when he says, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. There's other examples of that as well. Also some human examples. When humans are saying it, they're, sometimes they're wrong, but it seems to them as if it's the case. Uh, you know, Mary and Martha were all depressed over Lazarus' death, and they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, so That's a human use of the second class condition. And uh, a lot of times it's just wishful thinking on our part. It's not actually accurate in, uh, in those different things. So that's John chapter 11, verses 21 and, and 32 on that. There's other examples too where they're wrong. Matthew 23, 30, Luke 7, 39. Those are human examples where they're just wrong. They're wrong about what it is that they're talking about there in those circumstances. In any event, these things are important and I would encourage you to, to track this. For today's purposes though, it's obvious if that first covenant had, had been faultless. If Mosaic law could have done what the new covenant's going to do, then we wouldn't need the new covenant. If, if the first covenant would have done all that. And this just kind of goes without saying, but the author says it goes without saying, but let's go ahead and say it. Let's make a big deal out of it. That because the point is, the minute Jeremiah uttered, you know, in whatever, 586 BC or thereabouts, in the, in the sixth century BC, when Jeremiah uttered, behold, days are coming when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. The day that prophecy was given should have been the greatest joy that any Jewish person ever had because they, they finally they could realize, all right, this Mosaic law is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. This Mosaic law that none of us can keep, no, nobody can measure up to. This Mosaic law that doesn't perfect anybody. Perfection is not on the basis of Mosaic law. So the minute... That, that very moment that Jeremiah uttered the prophecy should have been the greatest thing in the world. Of course it wasn't because uh, he was hated. <laughs> he was the weeping prophet. They rejected him. They kept throwing him down wells and the king would rip up his scrolls. He was not a, uh, an accepted prophet. And he gave some of the most important messages we're ever going to study. <clears throat> God is the ultimate fault finder. I want to talk about finding fault here today. And we'll give you some lessons on how to find fault. And that way you can be biblical about it when you do find fault. Okay? I want you to be biblical when you find fault. The, the sanctified fault finding is, is called noble-minded in uh, the book of Acts. 
The Bereans were noble-minded. Search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. If the pastor is giving doctrine and it's not so, and it doesn't conform to the, to the Scriptures, find fault. Highlight it. And, and find that the fault is not, um, you're not, well, you are critical, but you're critical in a sanctified way because you're defending truth. And you're defending the Lord. And this is what, what it all comes down to. And God is the ultimate fault finder. So in verse 7 of Hebrews 8 it says, for finding fault, actually it's verse 8. In the Greek it's verse 7, but in, 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 in English here it's, for finding fault with them, he says. All right. And there's some manuscript questions and there's, a, I think the scribes didn't like this, so they, they made some manuscript adjustments as far as, is it, is it uh, accusative, autus? Is it dative, autois? Is he finding fault with the people for not keeping the covenant? Is he, not, is he finding fault with the covenant for not doing what it's designed to do? Um, and, and they debate that. But he is a fault finder. There's no question. The subject of the verb is God. The subject of the verb, the one who finds fault is the one who says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord. And so however else you want to resolve the manuscript question, I think is, becomes a, a secondary issue. Because the one who is the fault finder is the one who says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord. So Yahweh is the one speaking, and Yahweh is the fault finder, as uh, we might expect. God is the ultimate fault finder, as he manifests his wisdom in displaying the, I almost misread that, not the importance, but the impotence, the impotence of Mosaic law. All right? And God finds the fault in full view of everybody. He wants you to see it. He wants the angels to see it. He wants Israel to see it. He wants the church to see it. Everybody has to see the fault of the weakness of the obsolete nature of Mosaic law. And that's by design. God intended it that way from the very beginning. This is not, a, this is not an oops moment for God who is now disappointed in himself that he gave such a crummy law that now he's got to kind of wing it and try to do, something, do better the next time. Okay? No. He gave them the law precisely as he wanted with all of its flaws, all its shortcomings, all of its uh, imperfect nature intentionally so that angels see it, Israel sees it, the church sees it, and all of this uh, comes together in the, in the coming kingdom. So let me give you just a, a few verses on this and uh, we'll talk about this because Finding fault uh, in carnality is a perversion of what finding fault is in, in, uh, in a sanctified way. It's good to find fault. It's good to have discernment. It's good to have, think about it, maybe, I don't know, in our modern age, we call them troubleshooters, <laughs> right? And a troubleshooter is a good thing. You know, a troubleshooter that can, uh, you know, he can field test your code. He can, he can find the issues in your, in your software. He can, he can uh, in, in that case, it's, it's positive. You want him to find the faults so that you can remedy them before too much damage gets done. And, uh, and think about it that way, okay? That this is a positive, sanctified, fault-finding process. And it's good for us to find fault with the things God finds fault with and then to embrace the perfection that God supplies, because uh, let me tell you, carnality will turn a, uh, a grumpy human into the biggest fault finder in the world, and that is an ugly, ugly thing, as I'm sure anybody in this room can illustrate. Let's look at Job, Job chapter 40, and uh, going back to probably the earliest Hebrew uh, book, uh, even earlier than Genesis and how it was composed, uh, but in Job chapter 40, the Lord calls Job a fault finder. And it's, uh, it's quite a, 
a nice example, another example of, of the Lord's name calling when, uh, when he does that. He calls him the fault finder. And after going through all of the argumentation of Job and his associates, and then when Elihu speaks up, and he's got uh, about three chapters or so of divine viewpoint, and then the Lord speaks up, and he's got uh, a number of chapters here. But then in this conclusion, when he really puts it back on Job to, to give an answer, he's, uh, the Lord's ready now for the back and forth that, that, uh, that uh, his three associates put up with. God's not going to put up with it unless Job can really bring it. So the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And that is so convicting. Because to be a fault finder, it means you have to have divine viewpoint. That you have to have God's way of thinking. And uh, we should be fault finders as much as we are in agreement with God and his fault finding role. But to then be a fault finder and throw that against God, to accuse God of being unfair or wrong or or uh, ignorant about what he's doing, that's where Job crossed the line. And so he's not. He's not going to give the answer, and he's humbled by this. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. And so he is convicted related to being called a fault finder in this, and he's actually going to repent. And um, when, when the Lord goes through this whole argument here and talks about uh, you know, taking on the role of deity and contending with, uh, with Behemoth and Leviathan, that's a powerful section there in the book of Job. All right, God is the ultimate fault finder. We also have Romans 9 that uh, uses the language but doesn't often get emphasized in this way as far as a finding fault is concerned. Usually uh, anytime I'm in Romans 9, it's, it's, typically it's a Calvinist trying to turn me into a Calvinist. But when I go to Romans 9, I like to show what the real issue is there as Paul is describing the blessings of Israel and why God still has a plan for Israel and why the church is being worked out. That's just a parenthesis in the, in the plan of God for Israel. And so God will resume His plan and His program for them. And if I can kind of distill the, the larger issues here and then just kind of focus in, drill down on, on what they're dealing with here. Uh, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And uh, it kind of gets introduced with verse 14. And if we as finite creatures think that we know better than God, we need to stop and, and rethink that, okay? Because God knows better than we do. He always has. He always will. And, uh, and so when he hardens, that's his uh, purpose. When he softens, that's his purpose. When he has mercy and compassion, that's his purpose, and so forth. And who are we? Now, a, uh, a skeptic might come along and say then, well then, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who resists his will? And so there could be a tendency on the part of a finite creature to struggle with issues of sovereignty and volition, to struggle with issues of, of God's eternal plan, and then to just give up on the whole thing and say, well, if God controls everything, then I'm not accountable. If God makes me choose everything I choose, if God makes me do everything I do, if I'm just a puppet and He's just doing it and everything and we have no volition, well then, who, uh, why is He such a fault finder? Who resists His will? And just on a purely logical standpoint, there's something to be said for the fact that if you're not morally accountable, if you're not morally accountable, if somebody else is making your choices for you, well then the person making that choice is really the one that that should be morally answerable for the choices they made or the choices they made you make, if that makes any sense. 
So why does he still find fault or who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And that's not rejecting the logic of that critic, but that's rejecting the premise that the critic has that views that he can, he can critique God in this way. You know, how dare you accuse God of being a fault finder when the fact is he is the fault finder. He's the only fault finder that matters. He's the absolute standard of righteousness. You know, when I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ, it's the fault finder that's going to burn up all that wood, hay, and stubble. And it's the fault finder that's going to purify the gold, silver, and precious stones. So thank God that he is the ultimate fault finder when it comes right down to it. I certainly want him to be my judge, not, you know, any human being. (laughs) David said that. He said, I don't want a human being with power over me. David, even in choosing his divine discipline, said, leave me in the hands of God every time. And that's, uh, that's a powerful statement. All right. Well, there's more. And I think it's interesting here too, when you read down through these other verses, 21, 22, all the way down through 24, you recognize that the, that the potter knows what he's doing. He, uh, he didn't just become a potter yesterday. He's, he's doing this. He knows what he's doing. He has vessels that are prepared for one use, vessels that are prepared for another use. He has complete control of his plan, and we should rejoice in that. So God is the ultimate fault finder as he manifests his wisdom in displaying the impotence of Mosaic law. He's the ultimate fault finder, and he's displaying that for all of us. He, he put Mosaic law into place, 1500 BC, right? 1446, or whatever, however you date the Exodus and you date Mosaic law. It was roughly 1500 BC, roughly 3,500 years ago as of today. And he put that into place, not by accident. He put it there to show his wisdom. He put it there to show how impotent it was. What law could not do, God did in sending his son. And that all of that was on display. And uh, things are designed to show that we can't be justified by works, that it must be by grace through faith. The law was a tutor to lead Israel to Christ. There's a lot of functions for law that while it was in operation, God was happy to have it running there, but it was never designed to be the eternal purpose. And so we have the issues here that we're looking at in Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13, as we've been dealing with it here in these recent weeks, and we'll talk about it in... in, uh, a few, a few minutes here as we move forward, but we're going to be talking about why the new covenant is so superior to the old covenant and why it is that should come as no surprise since the new high priest is so much superior to the old high priest. It shouldn't be a shock that the new covenant would be superior to the old. Uh, but as it ends in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he had made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Okay, and I don't take that personally. <laughs> okay, even if you have a birthday coming up, it's not written about you. We all, uh, yeah, we're all getting old. But the point being here, the na- it was designed that way. It was uh, a feature, not a bug. Sometimes we we say right that it was intended to serve its purpose and then go away. And we, de- we deal with that. Over in chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Preview of what we will be looking at here shortly. Uh, Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. It's actually problematic that the tabernacle was still there or the temple was still there. 
until the Romans destroyed it, the temple was still there. And he says, as long as it's still around, it's a stumbling block. As long as it's still around, it's an obstacle. Because that high priest can go in there year after year after year after year. They've been doing it for 1,500 years. And they never get to the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. He goes in for one day, offers one sacrifice, and comes back out again. No one ever, until Jesus, who passed through the heavens, who Jesus entered within the real veil in the, in the, uh, in the heavenly places. And so while the outer table, uh, temple is still standing, um, the way into the real holy place has not yet been disclosed, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You had some external rituals, you had some external liturgies, they could become ceremonially clean, they could observe a, a, a ceremonial ritual like Passover, Pentecost, trumpets, booths, those kind of things, but they were not cleansed in their conscience for all eternity like the blood of Christ, which keeps on cleansing us. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Okay? Not the Protestant Reformation. Don't, lose, <laughs> don't go there. All right. But the fact is, you know, when you think about it, wow, food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body. And you realize the church has none of that? <laughs> none? Zero. Isn't that great? But Israel had all of that. Why did they have all of that? It was designed to lead the way to their future blessings in the, under the, uh, the new covenant, their future blessings in the reality. See, the old covenant was shadows. The, the millennial, the millennial uh, kingdom of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, that's going to be dealing with realities like you and I deal with realities in the church age. Substance. Christ will be present. And so they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Well, when is that time? And really it comes down to the big argument of what we're discussing today. Because it's, it's pretty common for evangelical churches, uh, for mainline denominational churches, for Roman Catholic. I mean, it's pretty much the rule that says, hey, we're in the new covenant now. Right? Uh, Israel was the old covenant, but God's done with them. Replacement theology, they're done, they lost it. We have it now, and we're in the new covenant now. They'll tell you that, and they're wrong. Okay, So let's, uh, let's be clear. The new covenant is after those days. The new covenant is not here yet. Just like Satan's not bound yet. Hello? And somebody tried to tell me, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, they were, had a preterist view that all revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD and now we're all into this and we're in the kingdom now. And, and I said, well, does that mean Satan's bound? Like it talks about Satan being bound. Oh yeah, yeah, Satan's bound. Like, wow. <laughs> what color's the sky in your world? This is, uh, this is, uh, this is a different way of looking at things. Because, uh, man... I'm looking around and I see a lot of darkness. I see a lot of wickedness. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. This is, uh, this is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict and we've got to be mature about it. Over to chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. Notice the shadow of the good things to come. They're not here yet. They were future when, they, when it was spoken, and it's still future today. It is still future today. Can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, it makes sense. 
Again, it's one of those second class conditions. It's not true, but if it was true, this would be the result. If, if just one of those Levitical sacrifices could have perfected the nation of Israel, then game over, we're done. God wins, hooray, yay us. And Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross, right? I mean, if one of those rituals was good enough, Jesus could have been spared the passion, could have been spared his spiritual death and his work of atonement. The fact is, of course, we know better. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I mean, there you go. Why do you think there's value in the ritual? Why do you think there's value? (laughs) The ritual is supposed to teach the doctrine. And if you're just going to go forward with a mindless ritual, like ritual without reality, you think there's value in the ritual? The value is in the doctrinal content that it conveys, the shadows that it, that it promises, that it, the reality, the substance that it anticipates. The substance is Christ. That's where the value is. And so uh, these things become, I think they become critical. Finally, uh, human fault finders, I tell you, God is the ultimate fault finder, but it doesn't keep Satan from using all kinds of human fault finders, including the creeps. Uh, they are the creeps that creep in in the book of Jude, Jude verse 16. There's these creeps. That's probably the wrong verse. Let me double check that. I'm subject to typos, you've noticed. In fact, generally speaking, if there's a class that goes by without one typo, it's kind of a miracle. Uh, Verse 16 is the fault finders, and uh, verse 4 is the creeps. So, since I'm highlighting fault finders, I'm okay with Jude 16 being on the slide. But it should be Jude 16, CF verse 4, compared to verse 4. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. You either stand on doctrine or you don't. We have a Bible. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the faith, the faith, once and for all handed down to the saints. And look out for the creeps. Verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So I call them creeps. And and we're not really sure. How long have they been here? When did they get here? Who is this guy again? You know? And it's just a note of caution. It's something the shepherd is mindful of. The deacons are mindful of. We love every visitor that ever comes in. But sometimes the visitors are creeps. All right? And we just, I mean, we don't tell them that to their face. But we we just want to know. Is this a brother and a sister that's just hungry for the Word of God, that's here to bear fruit, that's here to glorify Jesus Christ? Well then, you know, praise God. Welcome, you know, glad to have you here. And uh, hopefully, you know, visitors become regulars and regulars become members and we're just here for ever, right? Moving, rapture pending, we're just here, okay? But then there's the creeps. And how long do the creeps stick around? Okay. My suspicion is if you're teaching the truth and you hold to the truth, most creeps won't stay that long because they have no interest in the truth. And they're trying to pervert the doctrine, they're trying to get people changed over and whatever. And it just boggles the mind that someone would stick around for a year, two years, ten years, completely at odds with a church's doctrinal statement. Why would that even happen? Why would you even have an interest in hanging out? Is, is it, you know, is it the pastor's scintillating personality? I mean, what is it? It's, you don't agree with the doctrine. And none of your creeping has changed it, changed any of our sound doctrines. So, you know, it seems to me you'd want to creep away somewhere else and, and do that. 
But then the same context here, they're called fault finders. And uh, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And that's uh, not a sanctified fault finding. That's just uh, carnality in verbal expression. And so we want no part of that. That doesn't edify, that doesn't build up. It's not lawful, it's not profitable. And, uh, and we want no part of it. So, finding fault. And as far as the manuscript debate goes, I'm okay with, uh, honestly, I'm okay with autois or autus. Um, but I think it's better, uh, I don't remember now, I think autus is the, is the more, I'm, I don't remember now which one I settled on. He's either finding fault with them or finding fault in, in terms of the uh, Israel in the Old Testament or the covenant itself. I think the covenant's what's in view. Finding fault with the laws of the, of the covenant, the things that could not perfect the, uh, the people. For finding fault, he says, and I think the to them actually is better attaching it to the he says. So finding fault, he says to them, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. So explain to me here <laughs> why we can put the church into this. I mean, it's just, it's, if you have a literal hermeneutic and if you're fair to the manuscripts, if you're fair to the text, if, it's, if the covenant is made with Israel and Judah, that's not us. So we deal with it here. All right. This is right out of Jeremiah 31. And uh, some of it is, is word for word with the Septuagint. Some of it is a free rendering that varies somewhat with the Septuagint. It's kind of a fun study to put them up side by side and spot where the differences are. I think uh, Luke had a reason to change some of the terms that he changed away from the Septuagint rendering uh, to address it to his Hebrews audience here. But the new covenant is prophesied in the context of Jeremiah's numerous days are coming messages. Jeremiah, unlike any of the other prophets, Jeremiah was the prophet of days are coming. Remember that? We taught Isaiah in 66 Sundays. We taught Jeremiah in 52 Sundays. It was like a roller coaster, taking one chapter per week, like drinking from a fire hose. But you might remember, Jeremiah was the days are coming kind of prophet, right? Jeremiah was like, my mother, back in the day when she would say, just wait till your father comes home. Okay? Man, I heard that a lot. All right? Jeremiah, that was Jeremiah. Just wait till Messiah gets here. Okay? Behold, days are coming. And when Jeremiah gives these days are coming messages, uh, the context is the great tribulation of Israel, followed by the global regathering of Israel, followed by the founding of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The millennial kingdom being the Jewish kingdom of Israel with the throne of David in Jerusalem. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the body of Christ, with the church, with the body or the bride. We are a separate people. We are a separate plan, a separate program in the outworking of God's glory. That has to be clear. If not then we're swinging in the wind. We got, there is no hermeneutical control for anything else we want to do moving forward. We can start claiming this promise or that promise. We can uh, plunge into a replacement theology heresy. We can just start grabbing stuff and that aren't promised to us. Not at all. All right. 
before I actually read this text. We'll get to it in Jeremiah. So let's uh, turn back to Jeremiah 23. And in the process of reading these Jeremiah passages, we will cover Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12. And crafty fellow that I am, it'll be uh, a time saver. (laughs) All right. Because the new covenant is prophesied in the context of Jeremiah's numerous days are coming messages. And I didn't give you all of them. I just gave you a sampling of Jeremiah's days are coming messages. You can you can uh, search and find more. But in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8, behold, days are coming. And this is, uh, in this context, it follows uh, a woe message. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. So Israel's got a problem. And their spiritual leadership are the biggest part of it. They're victimizing the sheep instead of tending the sheep. And you can see Pharisees here, you can see Sanhedrin here, you can see the faithless shepherds uh, that uh, Jesus rebukes in his lifetime here. And uh, what he's going to promise them in the coming millennial kingdom. But in that context then, about raising up faithful shepherds and bringing them back to the land and not being terrified ever again. um, Just understand this is a future prophecy. So uh, verse 3 is future, verse 4 is future, verse 5. In that future context is the behold, days are coming, promise. So in verse 3 of 23, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. They will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And if somebody tries to tell you, well, that was the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1948, just laugh at them and say, are you kidding me? Are you reading the same verses I'm reading here? That's insane. Uh, You know, yes, they've been regathered, but they're regathered in unbelief, not faith. And he missed a few. (laughs) Okay. Uh, There's still more Jews outside the land than in the land. And uh, here he says, not one of them will be missing. And they will no longer be terrified or afraid. There's still terror attacks going on all the time. They're surrounded by enemies. There's still a lot of terror. And I will raise up shepherds over them. Seriously? They're not there in faith. They're there. You, you think uh, Netanyahu is the Davidic king? You think the Knesset is the, is the standard of righteousness? All right. These things are waiting the, the second advent of Jesus Christ. This is the millennial kingdom here. And so when it says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Tzidkenu, not Bibi Netanyahu, okay? Don't get me wrong, I like the guy, but I wish he'd get saved. And uh, I'd like for positive volition to happen in, uh, in Israel. But we're not there yet. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. When they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland, from the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. So they're not going to celebrate the Exodus like they're going to celebrate the global regathering of the second advent of Jesus Christ. That will be the substance of of which the Exodus was was a shadow or a type. So days are coming. Over to chapter 30. More days are coming. 
Behold, days are coming. This is Jeremiah 30, verse 3, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Remember, they were a divided kingdom at this point. They were divided after the days of Solomon. There were two Jewish kingdoms. And yet when he puts them together, we're going to see what happens because he puts them together. When I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, the Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting the way he uses pregnancy language here to get their attention. This is uh, not normal. This is uh, This is unthinkable. I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. (laughs) Ouch. Okay. And so that's not pleasant to think about. And that's the fear and terror of what Israel has to go through in the tribulation. All right. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins? (laughs) Because you just said it. That's why you see every man with his hands on his loins. That's why the men are squirming this morning as the pastor reads these verses. I don't want to have a baby. I saw my wife give birth four times. I'm not doing that. Why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. All right. The pinnacle of of divine judgment on this planet was not Noah's flood. The pinnacle of divine judgment on this planet will be Yahweh dealing marvelously with his people. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the great tribulation of Israel. And it is a unique day. There is none like it before. There's none like it after. There is nothing like the tribulation of Israel. And until Israel goes through that, until Israel goes through their tribulation, Jesus can't come back a second advent. It requires that tribulation to humble them, to humble them and prepare them to receive their Messiah. He will be saved from it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's curious to me, not really, but you can kind of be mildly amused, when the replacement theology people, they want to take Israel's blessings in the millennial kingdom, but I have yet to see any replacement theology textbook or pastor or or adherent I've never seen a replacement theology person grab on to the time of Jacob's trouble and make the church go through that. Okay? Isn't that interesting? If you're going to claim Israel's promises, claim the judgment too while you're at it. All right. Well, I guess there are some that teach the church goes through the tribulation, but not not on a replacement basis, not that I've read. All right. More of the uh, days are coming context then in uh, chapter 31. And before we get to verse 34, where we're really headed, um, notice in verse 27. And in, notice the time markers. At that time, declares the Lord. At that time. And then after those days. And then at that time. There's, there's clear markers in the text that are time markers. And other things have to happen first. There's some marvelous things in this chapter, including um, Rama and lamentation and bitter weeping. Look at verse 15. A voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. You think there's study that, you think this chapter needs some study? Of course it does. 
This, uh, this was a verse that was cited when Herod killed the babies in Bethlehem. That, uh, that there was a fulfillment of this, of this message here. So there's more darkness in store for them. And uh, he's going to have to turn their tears into joy. And he's, but they're going to have to repent. They're going to have to repent to bring that about. Verse uh, 31. It's also interesting why he keeps calling them a virgin. How, how do you make a non-virgin a virgin? How do you, uh, I mean, because Israel was a harlot. She was a faithless wife. She was the biggest harlot there ever was. But when he restores her, he calls her the virgin. And that's, uh, again, that's just as miraculous as a man having a baby. Or, uh, I mean, just all the languages used here is the language of things that are not possible in the human realm, but God does it. All right, verses 31, let's see, verses 27 through 30. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. So the time of unparalleled blessing, what we call the millennium, it can't come until the time of unparalleled judgment, unparalleled cursing, the wrath of God in the tribulation. To have the millennium without the tribulation is like the devil tempting Jesus to have the kingdom without the cross. Okay? It's not going to happen. It's not the Father's plan. So as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, think the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation of Israel, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel uses the same proverb in his preaching too. This is a, a rebuke. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a sad lamentation the Jewish people are still using to this day that uh, they're paying for the sins of their fathers. And uh, Jesus comes along in Second Advent and says, no, it's your generation that I'm dealing with now. <laughs> your generation. It always has been, generation by generation. Everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Each generation is accountable. And when the tribulation generation is dealt with, they're going to become the millennial kingdom generation. Those, uh, the remnant that gets saved, the remnant that repents, the remnant that comes into the glory of Jesus Christ. So behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Is that the church? That's Israel. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Wait a minute, is that the church? Who are the church's fathers? Not Israel's fathers, different fathers. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Was that the church? No, it was Israel. Israel is who got brought up out of the land of Egypt. Israel is who received the Mosaic Covenant. Israel's, the fathers belong to Israel, not the church. The New Testament never talks about church fathers. All right. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, and the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. It was a conditional covenant that was breakable. You know that? Abrahamic covenant is not breakable because it's unconditional. The Davidic covenant is not breakable because it's unconditional. The Mosaic covenant, completely conditional and very breakable and guaranteed to, uh, to break. <laughs> okay? Obsolete by design to show what he needs to show. 
my covenant which they broke. By the way, did the church break the Mosaic law? Church was never under Mosaic law. When Isaiah is speaking, we're still, you know, 600 years pre-church. It's with Israel. Even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Is that the church? Is the church the wife of, of Yahweh? No, we are the virgin bride of Christ, espoused, not yet married. Israel was the bride of Yahweh, and they were faithless, and they played the harlot, and they uh, committed every kind of adultery imaginable. That's why he issued a certificate of divorce against them. In uh, Yeah, all right. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now see what he did there? In verse 31, it's the house of Israel with the house of Judah. In verse 33, he combines them. And we have a promise here of a national restoration. He's going to restore all 12 tribes. North and south won't be north and south anymore. It'll be one united kingdom under Jesus Christ, the son of David on his throne. I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So that's not tablets that Moses can smash. That's written on their hearts. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. This is a future promise of will be. And they're not there yet. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. You know, Pharisaic pride will have no place in the millennial kingdom, not amongst the Jews. Because, uh, you know, back in first advent, the Pharisees and scribes and all those know-it-alls, they could lord it over the, uh, the you know, the schlubs, the, the Jewish, uh, try to throw a little Yiddish in there. The, you know, if you know more than the other guy, well, then you can start to convince them that you know everything and they're just, you know, trust me and do what I say and you'll be good. And, and they just use that as a club and beat up one another and control people's lives and just terrible. That won't happen in the millennium. Every Jewish person will be a spirit-indwelled prophet in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Every Jewish person will be a spirit-indwelled prophet. So who are they teaching? Gentiles, okay? They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Their national sin is wiped away. This is more than just personal sins, more than just getting saved and having your sins forgiven. This is why it comes to confusion. I think what happens is people get confused and they say, well, my sins are forgiven. I must be in the new covenant. Or, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I must be in the new covenant. Wait a minute. (laughs) That's an oversimplification that misses the point. There are similarities with what the church enjoys now, but those similarities are not identity. It certainly has more differences than similarities. Mainly we're not in Jerusalem with Jesus sitting on the throne. That's a big one. All right. And we still have unbelievers around. We still have all these, and Satan's not bound yet. And there's so many more. And remember the prophecy, I don't have it on the slide, but the prophecy in Joel 2 about pouring out the Spirit, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, on all flesh. But then he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So Jews and Gentiles all receive the Holy Spirit, but Jews are the ones that are vested in the prophetic office. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And so there is a teaching ministry of Jews to Gentiles in the millennial kingdom, not Jews to other Jews, because all the Jews will have the knowledge of Jesus Christ on their heart. So 
I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The national cleansing of Israel is accomplished because all Israel will be saved. Thus says the Lord. Now, if you think replacement theology is on track, um, pay attention to these verses because I think the sun came up this morning. And if the sun came up this morning, then God's still got a purpose for Israel and he's not done with them. He's not replacing them with the church. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order and the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now I haven't been to the beach lately, but I think the waves are still still going. Okay. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. You know, for 2,000 years they mocked this because there was no Israel. But now, uh, since ever since 1948, I guess uh, maybe this verse can be fulfilled after all. How about that? There is a nation. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Nope, so long as the sun keeps rising and all that fixed order is in place, God's got a plan for Israel. Finally, verses 38 through 40. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. More of these days are coming messages. When the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the Tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And it boggles my mind that they want to give up half of Jerusalem and, and that they're going to barter away some of their land for peace and all this stuff. It's all their land. The measuring line will go out straight ahead to the hill Gerib and they will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields. What dead bodies? What ashes? The tribulation. Okay, Remember the blood's going to reach the horses' bridles. There's going to be just unbelievable death that precedes this. The whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Now, <laughs> explain to me again how we're in the new covenant already. Because none of that has happened. None of that has happened. Not in 70 AD, not in the first 20 centuries of the church age, not today. There is a remnant in the land, but they're there in unbelief. And Isaiah 11 talks about that, how they're gathered in unbelief first and then they're gathered in faith at the second advent. The context is the great tribulation of Israel followed by the global regathering of Israel and the founding of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The new covenant... No, typo... See, there it is. I knew there's one in every class. The new covenant was prophesied during the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. But when it goes into effect, it will be made with the reunited house of Israel. And that's comparing uh, verse 31 with verse 33 there in Jeremiah 31. It's also comparing verse 8 and verse 10 in Hebrews 8. That is a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, when it gets restated. The house of Israel has the complete reference there. Though that divided kingdom is not divided ever again. Like I say, that got divided in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam after the death of Solomon. And, uh, and, the, and really the pagan side got the bigger chunk, <laughs> right? It was, uh, it was Jeroboam that took the ten tribes to the north and set up two golden calves and two centers of idolatry. 
And it was just uh, Rehoboam that kept the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin there in the south that uh, formed the positive uh, remnant in, uh, in that regard. Not that Rehoboam was a big hero, let me tell you. <laughs> he had his own issues. So prophesied during the divided kingdom, but when it goes into effect it will be made with the reunited house of Israel. The new covenant will supersede the Mosaic covenant and be made with those whose fathers were redeemed out of Egypt and given the Mosaic covenant. In other words, not us. <laughs> okay? The new covenant will supersede the Mosaic covenant, something we were never under. And be made with those whose fathers were redeemed out of Egypt, not our fathers, the Jewish nation. Those who were redeemed out of Egypt and given the Mosaic covenant. And um, We've already read Jeremiah 31, 32. We've already read, he- so therefore we've already read Hebrews 8, 9, which is a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 32. But if it helps us to consider, I talked about this at communion last week. Exodus 24. Join me there in Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8. I think it's very useful to go back when they got that old covenant, the day they received the Mosaic covenant. What happened? What was the process? How did that go into effect? A bunch of these liars that said, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Okay. Would have been great if if a believer or a doctor would have stepped forward and said, no, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. We can't do that. You know, someone could have stood up and said, no. (laughs) Uh, We like the Abrahamic covenant. It's unconditional. It's eternal. It's promise. Let's operate on promise instead of works. Let's operate on faith instead of works. I mean, when they heard that new, that Mosaic covenant about if you obey, if you disobey, when they recited the blessings and the cursings, wasn't there someone to stand up and say, uh, Abrahamic covenant is better than this. <laughs> Can we just stay with promise? All right. But now notice, and, and, and this came out in the communion service last week, and, and by then we're kind of in a communion mode and you put your notebooks away and you're not keeping notes. So pay attention. When, uh, when the law is being given here, when this covenant is being accepted, In verse 5, he sent young men of the sons of Israel, they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord. So is it the sacrifice that makes the covenant effective? That's the question. Because some people think that, well, Jesus died on the cross, we must be in the new covenant. Is the sacrifice what does it? So there's the sacrifice. But notice what happens after the sacrifice. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood, he sprinkled on the altar. So there's actually stuff that has to happen after the sacrifice. We would say for the new covenant, there's stuff that has to happen after Jesus dies on the cross. There's stuff that has to happen after the death, after the sacrifice. What is it? Well, half of the blood is getting put in basins. And the other half of the blood he's going to sprinkle on the altar. Remember, we're going to see in Hebrews 9, Jesus goes to heaven and he takes his blood and he cleanses the heavenly temple. But what about the blood that's set aside, that's in the basins? When's he going to apply that? Well, when did Moses apply it? 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. There's a declaration by the Jewish people that they're accepting the terms of the covenant. Has Israel ever done that after the cross? When Jesus died on the cross, did national Israel ever stand up and say, all that Jesus has said and done we will do? No. They were in, they were in rebellion when they crucified him. So then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of all the people. All right, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus quoted this in the upper room when he was giving communion. He said, This cup is the blood of the covenant which is given for many. Here's the, here's the concept so the blood is shed, but the blood is not yet sprinkled. And until the blood is sprinkled, until they're brought into the oath, they're not under the covenant yet. And certainly we're not under the covenant. It was never even designed to be with us anyway. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Sprinkled it on the people. That's the second advent of Jesus Christ. He hasn't done it yet. He can't do it yet. They're still in rebellion. Not until they accept Him as their Messiah can He sprinkle them with His blood. All right. So there's a concept there. I'm almost out of time. Romans 9, verse 4 and verse 5. Romans 9. Just in case you're still fuzzy on this whole who's the covenant made with question. Romans 9. We'll kind of close with this. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed. He would throw away his own salvation if he could. Separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Notice their description now. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants. You think the covenants made with us? All the covenants are made with Israel. And the giving of the law, not with the church, with Israel. And the temple service and the promises. Israel. Whose are the fathers? Are those church fathers? No, it's Israel. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So the new covenant is with Israel. It's not with the church. And it's it's just a, a terrible, terrible theological train wreck to try to put the church under Israel's covenant. Father, I thank you for this study. I thank you for the blessings we have to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Help us to recognize what our role is in the body of Christ, in the royal family of God, baptized in the union with the victorious Savior. Father, uh, we are not party to the new covenant. We are in Christ. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And we are the diakonoi, the servants of that new covenant in Christ. So Father, open our eyes to see these beautiful realities so that we can make our applications here and now and we can be prepared for our work when we get there. We thank you and praise you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.